0: Welcome to Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashken Kazarian, Legal and Research Fellow at Tech Freedom. Today, we're going to do a year interview and talk about surveillance in America. Joining us is Michelle Richardson, Deputy Director of the Center for Democracy and Technology, Freedom, Security, and Technology Project, and Senior Fellow at GW Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. Michelle, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Michelle, um, do you mind starting off by telling us about all of the wonderful ways that American government can spy on its citizens?
1: Sure. So m- most surveillance falls into one of two categories. The first is for criminal investigations, and this can happen at the local, state or federal level. And usually when people say surveillance, they mean electronic surveillance. So your phone calls, your texts, your emails, and the types of things that they get from companies. And there are rules in every state about how you do this. But in general, if they want to read your emails or listen to your phone calls or get your texts, they have to get a warrant. So this is traditional law and order stuff, right? You know, there's probable cause. They have to get a judge to sign off on it. They have to name you and say what they think you did wrong, or why would you have evidence of a crime? Um, And full-fledged wiretaps, like if they really want to listen to your phone calls and target you, um, they're very expensive. They're $50,000, they say, on average. So they're not actually used that often in investigations, um, it is easier though for them to get records. So they can go to your phone company or your email provider and just get the records of who you're communicating with. Or maybe they go to your bank, right, and get a record of your transactions. These are the types of things they can get without probable cause and just upon a subpoena.
0: And so what would they have to argue in that case? Do they get a subpoena from the same judge or is it a magistrate judge or So what level is the judge that they get it from, and do they have even to explain the reason behind it, or can they just do it?
1: Well, the reason behind it is uh, relevance to an investigation. So this is a much lower standard, and it's not even that you necessarily have done something wrong, but that there is some information in your accounts or something that's reflected in where you go or who you speak to. That would shed light on an investigation. It is an incredibly low standard, and it's very rare that a magistrate would reject something like
0: that. So it's a magistrate judge?
1: Right. If you're getting, for example, phone records or something that falls into the communication
0: bucket. What about a warrant? That, again, goes to a magistrate, oh, a federal okay. judge. Oh, so the yeah. same judge, the magistrate judge.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's actually easy for them to do this. There's uh, usually duty judges, right? You often hear all of these examples about why they need big, scary tools, because there's always a ticking time bomb or a kidnapped child. But, um, you know, there's always a duty judge that could be reached by cell phone in emergency circumstances. So um, the system is set up to accommodate law enforcement and really allow them to collect a lot of information. And, you know, all of this is just sort of the electronic and the communication data. You know, they still have the old, like, gumshoe ideas of uh, investigations, right? They could talk to your neighbors and the people you work with. They could um, follow you in public. They could try to find video from security cameras on the street, you know. So there are, uh, there are other ways for them to collect relevant information and find the bad guy, right? So, yes, yeah,
0: so the big brother is always watching. <laughs>
1: right. And that's just the criminal cases, right, which there's more of a nexus to something criminal. And the intelligence and homeland security surveillance, though, is a little bit different. And after 9-11, they actually changed the rules in many different ways for our domestic agencies. So one, they created the Department of Homeland Security Altogether. It didn't exist before 2002, and um, they rolled out fusion centers where they brought local, state and federal law enforcement within a state together to share information. that um, we found often because they were looking for bad guys and they didn't have leads, um, they would sometimes Track protesters or go to mosques and um, other ways, maybe look a little too hard that led to maybe racial profiling or collecting information that wasn't actually tied to an actual security threat. Um, we also had changes to the rules about how uh, DOJ and the FBI conduct their investigations. So they made it very clear that they did not need articulable. Facts to start an investigation, open a file, and collect information on people. So they, they said, we want to proactively connect the dots. That's the phrase they use a lot, right? Um, and we want situational awareness. Uh, the FBI now considers itself an intelligence agency first and criminal second. <laughs> and so they were more proactive about the information they were seeking on people. And the tools there often operate in secret. And that's one of the hallmarks of these intelligence programs as compared to their criminal counterparts. Um, For example, there's something called the National Security Letter. And there are tens of thousands of these sent every year directly from the FBI to a bank or a communications company requesting someone's records. And there's no judge involved, right? And the company is gagged from telling the person whose records were obtained.
0: But do they have to? What's the check What's the check on them? What's the oversight on those national security letters?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think we see often in these contexts that um, they say, well, Congress will have to do oversight, right? Uh, There'll be internal checks and balances. Um, And in some respects, you're just going to have to trust these people who are trying to protect your safety to know what is best and what is appropriate.
0: So you said in secret, and there's also a secret court, right? Kind of a secret court. Now it's out of the shadows a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the big surveillance um, is really run through something called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And this court was created in the late 70s after um, there were all these revelations about intelligence gathering against civil rights activists and political enemies, and that the claim of security threats were being really abused. Um, But they wanted to also recognize that when you have a legitimate terrorist or spy or other target, you want to offer the government more secrecy in how it conducts its investigations. So they wrote a whole new statute, created a court. Um, It's somewhere here in DC with um, a special staff um, in classified settings. And They can do warrant applications, for example, or applications to search someone's home or business, um, request records, basically recreated everything that was under the criminal law in a secret intelligence court. Um, The concern is that the standard there is a little bit lower. Um, It's not probable cause that you actually committed a crime, right? It's, um, for the most part, probable cause that you either work for a foreign government are involved with terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, um, other things, some that are not actually illegal. And um, we did not know how all of these programs worked until about 2013 when the leak started happening out of Edward Snowden. And we got documents and court opinions that showed the surveillance under these authorities was very different than we had been led to believe.
0: So what was the difference What was the difference between what you thought and were told was happening and what was actually happening?
1: Right. So I'll give you an example. So the Patriot Act changed the way the government could request records. And the Patriot
0: Act is the one that was passed after 9-11.
1: Right. Just a couple of months Mm -hmm. after 9-11, 2001, um, they said, you no longer need probable cause to get records and request so-called tangible things. Um, We're going to say it's just relevant to an investigation. And there was a sunset on that authority, and I actually worked at the House Judiciary Committee in 2005 when uh, the Justice Department had to come up and explain how they used it. Now, they never mentioned, as we found out much later, um, that they were using it to request every single phone record Mm -hmm. on a rolling basis every 30 days from U.S. phone companies, right?
0: Every single person who they had. So every single record Verizon has, every single record T-Mobile has, AT&T.
1: Yes, it was basically send over everything you got, anything you're keeping, right? And um, this was something that was obviously never mentioned at the time. And um, we were told, look, we're just targeting bad guys. You know, if we have someone who goes and buys you know, a huge amount of fertilizer or um, other chemical that's really only used to make bombs in the way that this is happening. Don't you want us to know who that person is? And um, that's what we have found with the intelligence collection. If it's not very, very closely watched, they um, stretch the normal meaning of a lot of these tools. Just
0: to be on the safe side.
1: Yeah, well,
0: (laughs) (laughs) they just stretch it a little bit out.
1: Well, and that's where we get back to a secret court, right? So something like the phone records program where they said everything's relevant, or it may be. We don't know what is, so we need to seize all of these records now mm-hmm. and uh, we, so we can search them later. Um, that's why it's quote-unquote relevant, and the FISA court signed off on that, right? Um, but when it was reviewed in a normal court, um, the judge said, you know, th- there's no common sense reading of the word relevant to mean this. But that's what happens when you have secret courts that are one-sided, that um, collect information that's not even necessarily meant to ever be introduced in court and see the light of day. So, um, you but have...
0: it might be still used to get to some point in the investigation, from point A to point B and point C, to connect those dots, right?
1: Right, right. They're, they're... And then
0: never disclose to the defendant.
1: And yeah, they're fond of saying that they want to um, use building blocks, um, you know, lower legal standards to collect information to support maybe, let's say, a real warrant or other tools. But the point is, is that when you go far enough back you know, um, and you're not notifying defendants about where the data came from, there's no ability for them to challenge it in court.
0: I I always wondered. I always questioned myself because it seemed so weird to me that they would get all of this information, all of this records. It's a haystack. It's isn't it harder to search for those? At from some point of view.
1: Um. Yes. Uh. I would say, the silence is deafening. Um. For the last sixteen years, we've been hearing about how if we just let them collect enough information, patterns will emerge, right? Um, I kind of imagine it like a beautiful mind where he's like imagining all the connections on the wall behind between his post-its. Um, but there are no examples of intelligence programs ever working that way. And um, with how aggressive the government often is with its examples and what they mean, I can't imagine they are sitting on these great stories of where they actually caught terrorists by just crunching numbers and collecting enough information.
0: Well, I hope we gave enough to our, for our listeners not to be able to sleep at night.
1: <laughs> well, you know, as, as we'll talk, there, there's plenty for them to do and help out for, uh, for their own privacy and everyone else's this year.
0: And um, we keep hearing about this upstream and prison programs. Do you mind explaining to our listeners what they are just, just in a nutshell?
1: Sure. So um, immediately after 9-11, President Bush started a warrantless wiretapping program, and he decided the statutes that told him that he had to go to court and get a court order if he wanted to actually command U.S. companies to turn over data didn't apply to him um, It infringed on his presidential authorities. And so he started a program where it operated outside of the courts. And once the public found out about it and there's a backlash, they decided to put it into law and actually authorize it under statute. And they did so by creating a law, which is now called S- Section 702, um, in 2008. And so it basically says, if you want to target someone overseas um, and force US companies to turn over the information, because we have so many companies here that actually service the world, right? We have a lot of international data sitting here in the US. Um, They just have to go once a year to get a generic authorization to run the program in general. And the court looks at the privacy procedures and how they choose who to surveil, but they never actually see the names or the phone numbers or the emails or the IP addresses of what's actually being surveilled. They don't
0: see the names of the people they approve can be surveilled on?
1: No, they just look at the general contours of the program, and we now know from Voluntary reporting from the intelligence community that there are about a hundred thousand targets every year under this program that are believed to be people overseas, and there are two concerns. One is just that you know international human rights do protect privacy, and it's a relatively new area that's just been burgeoning in the last five or ten years. Um, but that people overseas do have rights too, and uh, but. The other end may land here in the U.S. There might be an American or U.S. person on the other end of that phone call or email. So Americans are going to end up in those databases also.
0: So first question is, I always bring up this example of a co- second-year college student, so a sophomore in college who did a semester abroad, and she got an Italian boyfriend for a while, for a little bit, as long as their long-distance thing lasts. And she sends him... Um, message, a text message over Snapchat, and let's say her boyfriend is a journalist, or maybe she's in a national security class, and the information just picks up something and triggers the collection. It, it's possible, right?
1: Um, it's possible. Um, what we know is that the targeting only has to be for foreign intelligence purposes, Right. The government often uses terrorism examples, which are really quite compelling, right? But the program isn't just about terrorists. You know, you can't think, I'm not talking to a terrorist, I won't be in there. Um, It could be anything from people who are involved with foreign governments um, or political parties and for the National Defense and Foreign Affairs of the United States which is incredibly broad. And if you look at the things that the Defense Department or the State Department work on, uh, you know, it's purely legal stuff, but it affects, you know, monetary policy or the environment or other things where a lot of people have jobs and reasons to be interested in.
0: So activists, businessmen, environmentalists that can all get classified as foreign intelligence?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, And and that's the concern too. On on top of all of it, you don't have to be doing anything wrong to be a target under 702 or even just be incidentally swept up in the program.
0: Okay, wonderful. That sounds horrifying. And so this program, uh, the 702, section 702, it's up It has sunset date, December 31st, 2017. So what is Congress going to do? Do you think it's going to reauthorize it? Are there any bills um, on the floor, headed to the floor that you think might get passed? What is the state of the play? And just for our listeners, we're recording on December 15th on a Friday. Um, we uh, We believe that around December 22nd, there might be some action taken. So Michelle, do you mind... Telling us what's going on.
1: Sure, sure. So, the administration has asked Congress to just reauthorize the program without any changes. And with all of the information we know, now there's a big chunk of Congress who is demanding better protections, especially for Americans. And they want some sort of process that wouldn't necessarily limit the bigger overarching structure. Of the program. They're not saying, let's go back to getting individualized warrants on people overseas just because they have a Gmail account or a Facebook account. They are saying, though, that after you collect all this information, if you intentionally want to go look for an American in there, put in someone's email address or phone number, you should go to court first and have a judge find that this person is suspected of actual wrongdoing. And so that has been one of the biggest fights of the last few years. And as we come down to the end of the year, and Congress really wants to go home and start their Christmas break, um, the battle is over whether something like that will pass. And so we have several bills now, and um, most of them do not touch this in a meaningful way. Um, We're actually surprised about this. The House has voted many times, led by libertarians like Mr. Amash and Mr. Massey, um, to be very strict and say, no, you just flat out need a warrant. It doesn't matter what agency you're from or what you're trying to get. And the conversation now has really narrowed down to what the FBI should be doing. Since they do operate domestically, they are more um, U.S. person focused. You know, there are higher stakes there than when the NSA does it. And we have a couple of bills that came out of the intelligence community, excuse me, out of the intelligence committees. That might have been a Freudian slip there (laughs) that um, would not require the FBI to get a warrant. They would be allowed to access the American information without any sort of court review. Um, and we do have one that's out of the House Judiciary Committee with Mr. Conyers, Nadler, and Goodlat, and it um, would require a warrant in very narrow circumstances. It would just say, if this is purely for criminal investigative purposes, without any foreign intelligence purpose, you should get a warrant.
0: And there's also the problem of about collection, if I'm not mistaken, when someone sends an email to someone else, but they mention a target in the, let's say, email or in a message that can get collected too and swept into the database and then search in the database, correct?
1: Correct. Um, I think I dodged your question earlier about uh, uh, upstream and prison. And there, there are two ways that the program works. One- It's usually called downstream or prism, and that's where they go directly to Google or Facebook um, and say, I want this person or this email address. Um, The other way, though, is called upstream, where they work with the telecommunication providers at the backbone itself. And there they do different types of searches, and it returns different types of information. And the FISA court, in an opinion several years ago, said this is actually more dangerous, the way they search upstream, it's returning things that are wholly irrelevant and things that are purely domestic. And partly because they're not searching just for communications that are to or from the target, but about the target. And so they instituted special rules to say, look, um, if this isn't to or from the target, you need to minimize out the data. And we found out earlier this year that they were having problems, implementing the privacy rules properly. And so they had to stop that type of searching altogether.
0: But they don't want it codified.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, The NSA has said they may try to restart it. Right now they're focusing on what went wrong because they weren't able to implement the privacy rules. They weren't able to find a fix over six months where they were back and forth with the court saying, you know, give us more time. We want to find a way to restart this properly. Um, But they couldn't. And so they may try to restart it in the future. And we see the House Judiciary Bill with Goodlatte and Nadler um, trying to put an end to it altogether.
0: Yeah, and um, another thing that I've noticed when I looked at all of those bills is some of them have a sunset and some of them don't. The White House says, let's reauthorize Section 702 without any even sunset i.e. forever, I guess. Um, Some of them have six years sunset, which means Congress reassesses the need for the program and the privacy protections that it has um, in six years. Some of them have four years. Um, Most of them try to put a reauthorization end date on a non-election year so that political side doesn't play into it, I guess. But do do you think that there will be a sunset in whatever half-baked or maybe full-on reform these days. You don't know what's going to happen, but...
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the only thing that's certain at this point. Um, Congress does recognize that they do not get answers on these sorts of programs unless the administration is forced to come up and justify it so that the program can continue. And so um, people left, right, or even people who support the programs still want a sunset so they can have the continued oversight. So I think that's pretty certain. Um, Big question of how long it will be. Uh, We hope it doesn't go much longer than four years, because that's still a pretty serious chunk of time.
0: Yeah. And so let's segue a little bit from there and talk about 2018. You know, people do a lot of resolutions and uh, things might break within the first week of 2018 and the new year. Right. But what do you think uh, 2018 holds for our privacy rights and um, surveillance-wise? What are the next battles that the privacy advocates are going to have with the uh, intelligence community, obviously, respectfully and <laughs> in, a, in a nice manner? Yeah,
1: so... It's hard to predict. Um, The last few years, we've had these sunsets, right? And so they force an issue. And um, it has given us something to work on. And the administration couldn't get out of it. Um, So you end up often having to respond to policies as they arise. And so something hot right now is immigration and how surveillance is used to enforce our immigration laws. So I think you'll see in 2018 more focus on new technologies that are being rolled out at the border, things like facial recognition or using drones. And um, these have been around in some form for a long time, right, maybe used by local law enforcement or the private sector. But this might be one of the first really big rollouts we see by the federal government and their adoption of this type of technology.
0: What what type of technology are we talking about? Are we talking about collection of passwords at the border or is it some kind of facial recognition?
1: Yeah. So, um, first, the uh, the passwords at the border, that is, um, something that is done both by paperwork and also just by people who cross the border who are physically asked to hand over their phone. And, um, this is something that is part of a weird exception to the warrant requirement. Um, really doesn't make much sense. They basically say if you're close to the border, it's now a security issue, and so the normal Fourth Amendment rules don't apply. So they are able to search your phone without a warrant, and um, especially since uh, maybe six or seven months ago, we have an increased um, use of government phone seizures, and uh, sometimes they take your phone in a back room and download it. Sometimes they take it for weeks or months, and you don't get it back until later. And it's happening to Americans also. There are cases where people, um, American citizens, uh, they left the country for work or fun, and when they came back in, you know, they were told to hand over their phones.
0: That NASA engineer that came back from, I believe, India and... uh, he was detained, and they were trying to take his um, tech. And I think he had some classified information on there. So he was very reluctant, something like that, right?
1: Right, right. American working for the government itself, and um, they took his phone. So this is something that will probably continue into 2018. We don't see it stopping anytime soon.
0: Um, I also have a more philosophical question for you. So please, listeners, don't turn off, don't stop, listen to it. I promise it will be good. Um, My dad, um, he always, when I talk to him about the government surveillance work that I do at Tech Freedom, he says, well, that's all great, but I don't think it matters because I don't have anything to hide. Um, And I think a lot of um, Americans have the same uh, attitude towards it. What would you say to that?
1: Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> well, we all have something to hide, right? Uh, it's not that you've done anything illegal. But if you think about the people who are having financial problems or health problems or they're thinking about a divorce, these are things that we find intensely private and we want to keep to ourselves. It doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong. But um, it's our information to share with who we see fit, when we see fit. And the government should not have access to that, just because it may or may not be helpful in, in an investigation
0: someday. Especially since, um, as history shows, there are a lot of programs that exist that we don't even know about probably right now that have access to information that we don't even imagine they have. So if one day we find out that that was happening that might be a wake-up call, but as of right now, we should be more aware of the way technology has been implemented in our life and has taken part of it and kind of uplifted it into that famous cloud. And it's somewhere there in the cloud. I don't even know where in the world, probably somewhere in Myanmar, maybe on servers, there are my emails that I really don't want anyone to read because I do a lot of, I make a lot of typos, I'm going to be honest.
1: (laughs) Right. And, um, You know, with how cheap surveillance is now and storage and it's become so much easier to collect information. You know, if you think about all the things on your phone, even like the apps that when you probably signed the terms of service, you didn't realize it, but you said they can track my location, right? Um, and, And things like that. And I'll memorialize somewhere.
0: Yeah, your wearable tech, your Apple Watch or your Fitbit that is constantly on you probably takes up also information about your heartbeat and your health condition and where you go, who you meet, all of those things. Um, so yeah, there you have it. Um, make a pledge for 2018. Be more aware of your private information and who has access to it. Um, and before we wrap up the show, I would like to ask Michelle um, on a more personal note about her career path and the way she entered the world of policy and surveillance and privacy and what led her to where she is right now, which is CDT and GW and how she made the choices she made and um, fell in love with this area of law?
1: Yeah, you know, it was not intentional. I um, was in law school when 9-11 happened. And at the time, I planned to be just a very traditional civil rights lawyer and do race and gender issues, employment and education, and um, fell into this, you know, the rights analysis of these sorts of programs. So I graduated in 2003 and went to the Hill, to the House Judiciary Committee, and it was just around the time that... um, you know, habeas petitions were being filed for all of these detainees in Guantanamo. And the photos from Abu Ghraib leaked, right? So now there are torture questions. And um, libertarians and librarians were starting to organize around the Patriot Act. And there was suddenly an interest in national security issues that there hadn't been domestically in a very long time. And at the time, there wasn't a national security center at every law school in the country, right? And so it really felt like we were tackling something new and exciting, and um, man here here I am <laughs> fourteen years later, still talking about uh, uh, spying and technology and it's an area that constantly changes uh, talk about job security right every time there's a new technology, the government tries to find a way to use it to collect information, so there' will always be new challenges and um, you know even if you're not squarely in the surveillance bucket. Um, There's a lot of cybersecurity work that I think will be more about what the next 10 years are, whereas maybe surveillance was the last 10 years. Um, But cybersecurity is exciting. It's not as partisan. Um, There's still a lot of new ideas. People aren't as entrenched as much. So it feels like there are more opportunities to try new things and make headway.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your professional journey with us. We're going to be doing more of these Women in Tech Policy Career Paths segments in the future. You can follow Tech Freedom on Facebook and Twitter at Tech Freedom. And also download our show on iTunes and leave us a review. Let me know how I'm doing with my accent. Michelle, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you.